Volume four, chapter twelve, part A of the Mysteries of Adolfo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe. Volume four, chapter twelve, part A. Light thickens, and the crow makes wing to the rooky wood. Good things of day begin to droop and drowse while night's black agents to their praise do rouse. Macbeth Meanwhile, Count de Villefort and Lady Blanche had passed a pleasant fortnight at the Chateau de Saint-Foy, with the Baron and Baroness, during which they made frequent excursions among the mountains, and were delighted with the romantic wildness of Pyrenean scenery. It was with regret that the Count bade adieu to his old friends, although with the hope of being soon united with them in one family, for it was settled that Monsieur Saint-Foy, who now attended them into Gascony, should receive the hand of the Lady Blanche upon their arrival at Chateau-le-Blanc. As the road from the Baron's residence to La Vallée was over some of the wildest tract of the Pyrenees, and where a carriage-wheel had never passed, the Count hired mules for himself and his family, as well as a couple of stout guides, who were well armed, informed of all the passes of the mountains, and who boasted, too, that they were acquainted with every break and dingle in the way could tell the names of all the highest points of this chain of Alps, knew every forest that spread along their narrow valleys, the shallowest part of every torrent they must cross, and the exact distance of every goat-herd's and hunter's cabin they should have occasion to pass. Which last article of learning required no very capacious memory, for even such simple inhabitants were but thinly scattered over these wilds. The Count left the Chateau de Saint-Foy early in the morning, with an intention of passing the night at a little inn upon the mountains about halfway to La Vallée, of which his guides had informed him, and, though this was frequented chiefly by Spanish muleteers on their route into France, and of course would afford only sorry accommodation, the Count had no alternative, for it was the only place like an inn on the road. After a day of admiration and fatigue, the travellers found themselves, about sunset, in a woody valley, overlooked on every side by abrupt heights. They had proceeded for many leagues without seeing a human habitation, and had only heard, now and then, at a distance, the melancholy tinkling of a sheep-bell. But now they caught the notes of merry music, and presently saw, within a little green recess among the rocks, a group of mountaineers tripping through a dance. The Count, who could not look upon the happiness, any more than on the misery of others, with indifference, halted to enjoy this scene of simple pleasure. The group before him consisted of French and Spanish peasants, the inhabitants of a neighbouring hamlet, some of whom were performing a sprightly dance, the women with castanets in their hands, to the sounds of a lute and a tambourine, till, from the brisk melody of France, the music softened into a slow movement, to which two female peasants danced a Spanish pavan. The Count, comparing this with the scenes of such gaiety as it witnessed at Paris, where false taste painted the features, and, while it vainly tried to supply the glow of nature, concealed the charms of animation, where affectation so often distorted the air, and vice perverted the manners, sighed to think that natural graces and innocent pleasures flourished in the wilds of solitude, while they drooped amidst the concourse of polished society. But the lengthening shadows reminded the travellers that they had no time to lose, and, leaving this joyous group, they pursued their way towards the little inn, which was to shelter them from the night. The rays of the setting sun, now threw a yellow gleam upon the forests of pine and chestnut that swept down the lower region of the mountains and gave resplendent tints to the snowy points above. 
but soon even this light faded fast and the scenery assumed a more tremendous appearance invested with the obscurity of twilight where the torrent had been seen it was now only heard where the wild cliffs had displayed every variety of form and attitude a dark mass of mountains now alone appeared and the veil which far far below had opened its dreadful chasm the eye could no longer fathom a melancholy gleam still lingered on the summits of the highest alps overlooking the deep repose of evening and seeming to make the stillness of the hour more awful blanche viewed the scene in silence and listened with enthusiasm to the murmur of the pines that extended in dark lines along the mountains and to the faint voice of the izzard among the rocks that came at interval on the air but her enthusiasm sunk into apprehension when as the shadows deepened she looked upon the doubtful precipice that bordered the road as well as on the various fantastic forms of danger that glimmered through the obscurity beyond it and she asked her father how far they were from the inn and whether he did not consider the road to be dangerous at this late hour the count repeated the first question to the guides who returned a doubtful answer adding that when it was darker it would be safest to rest till the moon rose it is scarcely safe to proceed now said the count but the guides assuring him that there was no danger went on blanche revived by this assurance again indulged a pensive pleasure as she watched the progress of twilight gradually spreading its tints over the woods and mountains and stealing from the eye every minuter feature of the scene till the grand outlines of nature alone remained then fell the silent dews and every wild flower and aromatic plant that bloomed among the cliffs breathed forth its sweetness then too when the mountain bee had crept into its blossomed bed and the hum of every little insect that had floated gaily in the sunbeam was hushed the sound of many streams not heard till now murmured at a distance the bats alone of all the animals inhabiting this region seemed awake and while they flitted across the silent path which blanche was pursuing she remembered the following lines which emily had given her to the bat from haunt of men from day's obtrusive glare thou shroudst thee in the ruin's ivied tower or in some shadowy glen's romantic bower where wizard forms their mystic charms prepare where horror lurks and ever boding care but at the sweet and silent evening hour when closed in sleep is every languid flower thou lovest to sport upon the twilight air mocking the eye that would thy course pursue in many a wanton round elastic gay thou flitst athwart the pensive wanderer's way as his lone footsteps print the mountain dew from indian isles thou comest with summer's car twilight thy love thy guide her beaming star to a warm imagination the dubious forms that float half veiled in darkness afford a higher delight than the most distinct scenery that the sun can show while the fancy thus wanders over landscapes partly of its own creation a sweet complacency steals upon the mind and refines it all to subtlest feeling bids the tears of rapture roll the distant note of a torrent the weak trembling of the breeze among the woods or the far-off sound of a human voice now lost and heard again are circumstances which wonderfully heighten the enthusiastic tone of the mind the young Saint-Foix, who saw the presentations of a fervid fancy and felt whatever enthusiasm could suggest sometimes interrupted the silence which the rest of the party seemed by mutual consent to preserve remarking and pointing out to blanche the most striking effect of the hour upon the scenery while blanche whose apprehensions were beguiled by the conversation of her lover yielded to the taste so congenial to his 
and they conversed in a low, restrained voice, the effect of the pensive tranquillity which twilight and the scene inspired, rather than of any fear that they should be heard. But while the heart was thus soothed to tenderness, Saint-Foy gradually mingled with his admiration of the country a mention of his affection, and he continued to speak and blanched to listen till the mountains, the woods, and the magical illusions of twilight were remembered no more. The shadows of evening soon shifted to the gloom of night, which was somewhat anticipated by the vapours that, gathering fast round the mountains, rolled in dark wreaths along their sides, and the guides proposed to rest till the moon should rise, adding that they thought a storm was coming on. As they looked round for a spot that might afford some kind of shelter, an object was perceived obscurely through the dusk on a point of rock a little way down the mountain, which they imagined to be a hunter's or a shepherd's cabin, and the party, with cautious steps, proceeded towards it. Their labour, however, was not rewarded, or their apprehensions soothed, for, on reaching the object of their search, they discovered a monumental cross, which marked the spot to have been polluted by murder. The darkness would not permit them to read the inscription, but the guides knew this to be a cross raised to the memory of a Count de Belliard, who had been murdered here by a horde of banditti, that had infested this part of the Pyrenees a few years before, and the uncommon size of the monument seemed to justify the supposition that it was erected for a person of some distinction. Blanche shuddered as she listened to some horrid particulars of the Count's fate, which one of the guides related in a low, restrained voice, as if the sound of his own voice frightened him. But, while they lingered at the cross, attending to his narrative, a flash of lightning glanced upon the rocks, thunder muttered at a distance, and the travellers, now alarmed, quitted the scene of solitary horror in search of shelter. Having regained their former track, the guides, as they passed on, endeavoured to interest the Count by various stories of robbery, and even of murder, which had been perpetrated in the very places they must unavoidably pass, with accounts of their own dauntless courage and wonderful escapes. The chief guide, or rather he, who was the most completely armed, drawing forth one of the four pistols that were tucked into his belt, swore that it had shot three robbers within the year. He then brandished a clasp-knife of enormous length, and was going to recount the wonderful execution it had done, when Saint-Foy, perceiving that Blanche was terrified, interrupted him. The Count, meanwhile, secretly laughing at the terrible histories and extravagant boastings of the man, resolved to humour him, and, telling Blanche in a whisper his design, began to recount some exploits of his own, which infinitely exceeded any related by the guide. To these surprising circumstances he so artfully gave the colouring of truth that the courage of the guides was visibly affected by them, who continued silent, long after the Count had ceased to speak. The loquacity of the chief hero thus laid asleep, the vigilance of his eyes and ears seemed more thoroughly awakened, for he listened, with much appearance of anxiety, to the deep thunder which murmured at intervals, and often paused, as the breeze that was now rising rushed among the pines but when he made a sudden halt before a tuft of cork-trees that projected over the road, and drew forth a pistol before he would venture to brave the banditti which might lurk behind it, the Count could no longer refrain from laughter. Having now, however, arrived at a level spot, somewhat sheltered from the air by overhanging cliffs and by a wood of larch that rose over the precipice on the left, and the guides being yet ignorant how far they were from the inn, the travellers determined to rest, till the moon should rise, or the storm disperse. Blanche, recalled to a sense of the present moment, looked on the surrounding gloom with terror, but giving her hand to Saint-Foy, she alighted, and the whole party entered a kind of cave, 
if such it could be called, which was only a shallow cavity formed by the curve of impending rocks. A light being struck, a fire was kindled, whose blaze afforded some degree of cheerfulness, and no small comfort, for, though the day had been hot, the night air of this mountainous region was chilling. A fire was partly necessary also to keep off the wolves with which those wilds were infested. Provisions being spread upon a projection of the rock, the Count and his family partook of a supper which, in a scene less rude, would certainly have been thought less excellent. When the repast was finished, St. Foy, impatient for the moon, sauntered along the precipice to a point that fronted the east. But all was yet wrapped in gloom, and the silence of night was broken only by the murmuring of woods that waved far below, or by distant thunder, and, now and then, by the faint voices of the party he had quitted. He viewed, with emotions of awful sublimity, the long volumes of sulphurous clouds that floated along the upper and middle regions of the air, and the lightnings that flashed from them, sometimes silently, and, at others, followed by sullen peals of thunder, which the mountains feebly prolonged, while the whole horizon and the abyss on which he stood were discovered in the momentary light. Upon the succeeding darkness, the fire which had been kindled in the cave threw a partial gleam, illumining some points of the opposite rocks and the summits of pine woods that hung beetling on the cliffs below, while their recesses seemed to frown in deeper shade. St. Foy stopped to observe the picture which the party in the cave presented, where the elegant form of Blanche was finely contrasted by the majestic figure of the Count, who was seated by her on a rude stone, and each was rendered more impressive by the grotesque habits and strong features of the guides and other attendants who were in the background of the piece. The effect of the light, too, was interesting. On the surrounding figures it threw a strong, though pale gleam, and glittered on their bright arms, while upon the foliage of a gigantic large that impended its shade over the cliff above, appeared a red dusky tint, deepening almost imperceptibly into the blackness of night. While St. Foy contemplated the scene, the moon, broad and yellow, rose over the eastern summit, from among embattled clouds, and showed dimly the grandeur of the heavens, the mass of vapours that rolled half-way down the precipice beneath, and the doubtful mountains. What dreadful pleasure! there to stand sublime like shipwrecked mariner on desert coast, and view the enormous waste of vapour tossed in billows lengthening to the horizon round. The Minstrel From this romantic reverie he was awakened by the voices of the guides repeating his name, which was reverbed from cliff to cliff, till a hundred tongues seemed to call him, when he soon quieted the fears of the Count and the Lady Blanche by returning to the cave, as the storm, however, seemed approaching, they did not quit their place of shelter, and the Count, seated between his daughter and St. Foy, endeavoured to divert the fears of the former, and conversed on subjects relating to the natural history of the scene among which they wandered. He spoke of the mineral and fossil substances found in the depths of these mountains, the veins of marble and granite with which they abounded, the strata of shells discovered near their summits, many thousand fathom above the level of the sea, and at a vast distance from its present shore, of the tremendous chasms and caverns of the rocks, the grotesque form of the mountains, and the various phenomena that seemed to stamp upon the world the history of the deluge. From the natural history he descended to the mention of events and circumstances connected with the civil story of the Pyrenees, named some of the most remarkable fortresses which France and Spain had erected in the passes of these mountains, and gave a brief account of some celebrated sieges and encounters in early times 
when ambition first frightened solitude from these her deep recesses, made her mountains, which before had echoed only to the torrent's roar, tremble with the clang of arms, and when man's first footsteps in her sacred haunts had left the print of blood. As Blanche sat, attentive to the narrative, that rendered the scenes doubly interesting, and resigned to solemn emotion, while she considered that she was on the very ground once polluted by these events, her reverie was suddenly interrupted by a sound that came in the wind. It was the distant bark of a watch-dog. The travellers listened with eager hope, and, as the wind blew stronger, fancied that the sound came from no great distance, and, the guides having little doubt that it proceeded from the inn they were in search of, the Count determined to pursue his way. The moon now afforded a stronger, though still an uncertain light, as she moved among broken clouds, and the travellers, led by the sound, recommenced their journey along the brow of the precipice, preceded by a single torch that now contended with the moonlight. For the guides, believing they should reach the inn soon after sunset, had neglected to provide more. In silent caution they followed the sound, which was heard but at intervals, and which, after some time, entirely ceased. The guides endeavoured, however, to point their course to the quarter whence it had issued, but the deep roaring of a torrent soon seized their attention, and presently they came to a tremendous chasm of the mountain, which seemed to forbid all further progress. Blanche alighted from her mule, as did the Count and saint Foix, while the guides traversed the edge in search of a bridge, which, however rude, might convey them to the opposite side, and they at length confessed what the Count had begun to suspect, that they had been, for some time, doubtful of their way, and were now certain only that they had lost it. End of Volume 4, Chapter 12, Part A